Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. That's a leather jacket. Summer is dead. You're watching AM to DM. Summer's not dead. <laughs> well, Summer, okay. I'm, it's just okay, a little Mr. chilly. Okay, Mr. Motorcycle. It I'm, is really cold. I'm feeling real cool. I am. Oh. Feel, feeling real cool. That one's for you, Ben Smith. But seriously, it is Friday, and we are very, very, very excited to make it to this day. Because y'all... It has been a week. I didn't have another weekday in me. Oh my <laughs> lord! Uh, and this news. Is technically, a short week. Definitely all right, because like it. it was a three-day weekend at the beginning. Uh huh. Tuesday to Friday. Yeah. Should have been an easy week. You know why this week? I think in terms. I know every, every single, all of us have tweeted too much news or said it at some point this week. Part of it is because at least for us, Isaac and our, our workday ends. I almost fell. Isaac and our workday usually ends around two p.m. But so much news is broken in the afternoon. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like you do the whole your whole workday, mm -hmm. and then late afternoon you're like anonymous op-ed. Like what? Uh, 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 it's just and you whew. keep keep. Up with it. I'm tired. Here's the thing, though. Yeah. Knock on wood. Oh, but I'm, I'm knock it. on wood. <laughs> okay. I didn't know you're so into the superstition. We're gonna be technical. We're gonna be technical. It feels today's one of those days. It feels like a Friday where you can just tell the whole timeline. Everyone has been having so much yeah. news all week that things are starting to just slow down. We're exhausted because people are exhausted. exhausted. The only person still going is probably Malcolm Gladwell. Just. <laughs> I'm, I'm still going. I'm you still. are. Isaac is, is just unstoppable. Yeah, uh, but listen, sure. I feel like today has a summer Friday vibe. It does. I, I don't hope, think anyone's in the building but us. I hope you all take some time for yourself. Get off, you know, get off, detach from the news a little bit. Ben Smith clearly is detached from the news because you keep tweeting me about Megyn Kelly and I don't care. There don't it is. I care about Megyn Kelly, Ben. There it is. It is. It's anyway. a summer Friday. <laughs> Unless, of course, our oh. producer Caro is right. She tweeted, dance like nobody's watching, love like you'll never get hurt, make weekend plans like the identity of the op-ed writer isn't going to be revealed at 5 p.m. today. <laughs> I, That's a good tweet. I really think there's a possibility. Yeah, this, this I, I have week, to admit I'm a bit surprised that we don't already know. This news week might go into the weekend. It, it, it can, it, this news we can do whatever the fuck it wants. I'm walking <laughs> out of this dude. It's over. It's do you, over. Do you, do you think you know who the op-ed writer is? Do you have anybody you'd want it to be? I, oh, I want it to be Jared Kushner. Oh. Because that would just be delicious. That would be pretty dramatic. That would be very dramatic. That would be but pretty I don't, good. Who knows? I mean, it, could, it might be someone who doesn't even technically work in the White House, right? It could be mm -hmm. someone in one of the many agencies that are a part of the administration. Who do you Absolutely. think? Listen, I'm going to go with the original. I know it's not who it is, but I just love the whole Lodestar thing. I got oh, into yeah. it. Get your detective thing. Like that whole thread really gave me life. And so if it was Mike Pence, again, I don't actually think that's who it is, but I think these are our, our most dramatic readings. Of who I'm it could into be. it. Kushner or Pence. I'm well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. The incidents, I'm sorry, the incident that inspired Twitter to ban Alex Jones appears to have been a series of tweets containing a nine-minute Periscope video of him confronting CNN reporter Oliver Darcy. To put it another way, as the wonderful David Mack tweeted, holy shit, Twitter did the thing. Twitter <laughs> did the thing. Finally. Charlie Warzel, senior technology reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us now to help us understand why this particular incident was the last straw. Charlie, good morning. Good morning. All right, listen, to start, what exactly happened between Oliver Darcy and Alex Jones? Uh, so this happened, I believe it was Wednesday, but it, it literally could have been any time because my brain is broken and time is a flat <laughs> circle. Um, but I believe it was on Wednesday during the big tech hearings on Capitol Hill. A bunch of reporters were there. Alex Jones showed up to what he said, uh, confront his um, like his demons or something like that. You know, to confront the people, his accusers. I think is what he said, um, who who were censoring him on social media. And uh, he made a big spectacle. He got in a little bit of a confrontation with Marco Rubio. Um, and then in the hallway between one of the hearings, uh, he and his, I believe, three cameramen uh, confronted Oliver Darcy, who has been writing and reporting on Twitter harassment issues and Infowars. Um, and he basically for nine minutes sort of uh, had him in a, in a corner with multiple cameras and started calling him all these names, calling him the devil, saying he was, uh, he was like the new Hitler youth, things like that. Um, obviously, it was, a, it was a bit of a one-sided confrontation as Oliver Darcy didn't seem to want to be a part of that. Um, and, and I think it was actually a, I, I'm not sure if it would have had violated Twitter's rules, but it was a bit of like 
in real life harassment that was happening, uh, and it was live streamed on Twitter. So uh, that seems to be um, that confrontation, which then Infowars wrote stories about and promoted uh, all over their many distribution channels. uh, That seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Okay, here's the thing, Charlie. Um, I watched the video this morning, and, you know, Alex Jones is crazy, but he's always crazy. And so for me, I'm curious, why for Twitter was this, this particular incident the last straw? I mean, he's been harassing uh, Sandy Hook parents for years. So I I was just a bit surprised that in a way this almost seems like a technicality, right? Like it it just happened to be broadcast on Periscope. Like when you get an Oscar for like probably two movies ago, but you haven't had an Oscar yet, so we're gonna give it for this So we're gonna do that, totally. It's the Denzel of of (laughs) Twitter banning. Right, or like the Al Capone getting caught on tax fraud, right? I like that more. Better, better. I'll give it to you. Better. Um, well, the thing to the thing to know about this uh, is that is that Twitter thinks that this follows a a really consistent path of enforcement, where the rest of us might not see that. What Twitter thinks is um, back in early August when. Uh, Apple and Facebook and YouTube all sort of like quickly banned Jones from from the platforms and Infowars. Um, Twitter saw that as taking that step as being reactionary. They alleged that they hadn't been receiving a lot of actual like reports about Jones's behavior as violating the platform. Um, and so, and what they didn't want to do at that point was retroactively ban him for things that he had done. They wanted to wait until he had done something. And they, they felt like this would show that they were being consistent. So they they basically, like, that seems to be the moment where they really started paying attention to his behavior. And a lot of people will argue that it is like eight years too late, maybe even 10 years too late. Um, but that's sort of how they feel. So it was really early to mid-August when they started... I guess, you know, really focusing in on his behavior like that um, and and watching for, you know, different um, strikes to come down. And this just seems to be the last strike. The last strike. All right, now, are there any, like, is this like a lifetime ban or could he be back next week? And also, has Jones said anything since he was banned? Um, this is a lifetime ban, both for the info at Infowars account and the at Real Alex Jones account, which is ostensibly just his account. Um, but there's also a clause for um, in place in case he tries to circumvent that ban. If Alex Jones or any of the you know Infowars staffers try to use that account or try to use somebody else's account or try to create a new account, those accounts will be terminated. Okay. Well, here's a tweet from you, Charlie. Um, You said yesterday, I know I say this all the time, but I think Twitter is the most important platform for pro-Trump media folks, including Alex Jones. He thrives off of mainstream media confrontation. That will be much harder now. I just think this point is is so interesting. So could you talk about why, for at least Alex Jones, so let's focus on him, why was Twitter such an important part of his outreach, I guess, for InfoWars? Yeah. Uh, Twitter is sort of unlike any any social network um, in as you as you well know um, in that it allows you know for these conversations to happen it allows sort of it has this flat architecture that allows people to you know you can reach out and tweet at a celebrity and there's a chance that that celebrity will say something um, it just has this this ability to let people actually speak with each other with with few uh, limitations that can lead to things like harassment obviously but it's also um, it's it's it can be delightful, and Alex Jones is somebody who has used this to the nth degree. He has used Twitter to sort of you know always stay in the spotlight, to sort of reach out, to offend, to attract the attention of journalists and reporters like myself, like all of us. Um, and a lot of times we kind of fall into that. And Jones gets a lot of mainstream media attention as a result of his ability to kind of cross over on Twitter. Um, and and he's lost that now. You know, journalists talk about spending so much time on Twitter. We say we live on Twitter, um, and you know now Alex Jones doesn't live there. So I think that's gonna gonna have some real consequences for his visibility. Yeah. Uh, I'm both like, amen, and also fascinated to see how this can possibly get worse, because I'm sure it will. Um, Charlie, it can always get worse. It can always get worse. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. 
procedure. And I'm loving that background. Yeah. I'm loving the Powell His books nuclear background. nuclear bunker is getting very He's getting fancy some nice art. Montana. Yeah, out there yeah, in Montana. It's like a slow progression. I really he? appreciate it. I don't Talk know if you saw that Onion article that was like Alex Jones goes back to shouting in his megaphone in the town square because that's basically what's happening. It's a mood. It's great. Well, listen, inspired by this conversation, let's take it to the timeline. If you could create and enforce one new rule for Twitter, what would it be? Let us know using the hashtag AM2. Give us that edit button. Do you really want to? I actually button? don't. Oh. Yashara has actually talked me out of, oh, he's like yeah. laid out why the yeah, edit button would too. be a problem. Me too. I've if you could make button. one rule though, what would it be? The president of the United States is not allowed to tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, any, like, forever? No, I'm sorry. Sorry, boo-boo. Like, Michelle Obama, whoever ends up, you know, being president in the future. It's the Trump rule. He ruined it for everybody. None of y'all hoes are allowed to tweet. <laughs> no president is ever allowed no more to tweets. tweet. Uh, for me, I feel like it would be, like, editing the amount you're allowed to tweet each day. Like, if you have a busy day ahead of you, you could be like, okay, I'm only allowed to tweet once today. If it's, like, a Saturday, you're like, oh, oh you I could set it. tweets. Yeah, you could set it oh, for yourself. I like that. That's a pretty good That's idea, right? That, I like that. It'd be like, all right, Saeed, you got five tweets. It's, it's only noon. <laughs> You've used <laughs> you four sure of them. Be careful. I like that. Get at like us, that. Twitter tech team. We've got ideas. All right. Listen, a historic moment in India this week. BuzzFeed tweets, India's Supreme Court has voted to repeal a colonial-era law that criminalized gay Sex. When the verdict was handed down, the Chief Justice of India declared, only when every individual is liberated can we call ourselves a true democratic society. LGBT community has the same rights as other citizens do. Denial of self-expression is like death. And I want to say it again because mm -hmm. I just think that's so powerful. Denial of self-expression is like death. It's such a strong line. Equal rights activist Harish Ayer tweeted, it is sinking in now. Perhaps our voice has been silenced for so long that freedom seems like a fantasy. Maybe we need to pinch ourselves more often and remind ourselves that this is happening now. Now, love has won, and Section 377 is in the closet. That is absolutely beautiful. Well, Harish Ayer joins us now from India. Hi, Harish. Hello. Wonderful. Thank you. How are you doing? We're doing well, and we are honestly just so happy for you. We are so happy for you and all of our queer family members uh, in India. Uh, for people who have not been following this story, which is huge, uh, what was Section 377? Section 377 is a colonial law. It was uh, brought in by Lord Macaulay uh, to India. And in fact, all the colonies, all the British colonies have got Section 377, whether it's Singapore, whether it is, uh, whether it's all, all, this, all the colonies have Section 377. Now, uh, Section 377 uh, criminalizes carnal intercourse against the order of nature, which simply means that um, it, it criminalizes unnatural sex. Now, what they mean by the word unnatural sex, because that's a lingo that is used quite often in India, uh, they mean that any kind of sex that doesn't involve the combination of a penis and a vagina is termed as unnatural sex. So basically, if you look at it, if you delve into it a little more deeply, it's basically about uh, the fact that sex can be there only for procreation and not for recreation. You know, so there's a penis, it should go only in the vagina and nowhere else. And, and, the, and the penalty is, uh, ten, uh, is up to 10 years of uh, rigorous imprisonment. What? If at all uh, you're busted, if at all you're doing something and you're busted, then you can you go behind bars for 10 years, and whether it's consent or without consent. And that's a law that's existed for 157 years. So I got to ask, what have the celebrations been like now that it's been struck down in India? Oh, we, um, we had a mini pride march in Mumbai. Um, the moment, uh, I mean, the first uh, thing that we did was uh, uh, we, we took a breather because we really couldn't believe our ears when, when we heard the verdict. Also, the fact that um, it was a well-pronounced verdict. I mean, this, the statement that you just mentioned. Also, the verdict in, in, uh, uh, included an apology by one of the chief justices uh, who actually said that... Um, uh, history owes an apology to LGBTIQ Indians. So, so I think it was it was very heartfelt. It's a 500-page uh, verdict. Wow. Uh, it also went on to say that uh, constitutional morality cannot be determined by a majority of people. I mean, constitutional morality is on a different is on a different plane altogether. And the Constitution of India um, guarantees a life of dignity to every Indian, irrespective of whether the Indian is a minority 
or belongs to majority religion or majority sexuality. So, um, so I think this reaffirmed our faith in the constitution, reaffirmed our faith in uh, the judiciary, um, and, and we're feeling really good about it. As you should, as you said, my heart is so full. Um, I'm curious, you know, this this policy, as you mentioned, uh, exists in uh, colonies all over the world and, and has been around for so many years. What changed? Like, why did this policy change now? What, what led to this groundswell of change? I think, um, I, I think there's been more awareness. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of videos that were made. Uh, there was there was a lot of conversation. The, you, India has uh, the 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 largest demographic in India is under the age of twenty five. So and and they are very pro, uh, broad minded and they think about uh, equality. Um, so so all the fossils, um, um, you know, uh, of Section three seven seven, people are recognizing that to actually have a thought where uh, people are going to be criminalized for loving or making love to a person whom they, as long as it's in private and uh, with consent, if they are going to get criminalized for that, people have started understanding that that's, uh, I mean, you, you need to be a fossil to actually think like that. Uh, so so you so now because of the discourse, the, the conversations, also the fact that, um, also the fact that there are, many more voices we had um, previously we didn't have so many voices we just had like four or five lgbt people now now you have you just you just open the newspaper and you'll find um, at, le at least a dozen lgbt people so so now what's what's happening is because of this conversation people have opened up and uh, india is uh, india has started realizing that uh, we are a force that people can't ignore that people can't ignore. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Harish. And again, congratulations. Truly. Thank you so much. Gotcha. And what's wild to me, it was a 5-0 vote. Yeah. It was absolutely unanimous. All right. It was incredible. I have a tweet here from Rachel. The people who believe sex is only for reproduction and not recreation are not only hateful, but probably not good in bed because they don't make the effort. Just saying. <laughs> Somebody's ready for the weekend. Well, friends, we've got a great show for you. We're really excited uh, because Isaac and I are going to share the first uh, installment from our Making the Most of Road Trip series. You've probably seen our tweets. Yeah, we We're went to so San Francisco. Excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. Woo! But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Fire Tweets. Fire Tweets. Sometimes I, we have a confidence monitor so Isaac and I can see ourselves acting up. And sometimes I just get caught up in my look and his dancing. Okay, uh, so earlier, <laughs> and I saw Rachel, you said my shirt looks like Star Trek. That's an accident, but I'll, I'll go with it. Um, so we asked you, you know, if you could come up with a rule for Twitter and enforce it, what would it be? You know, now that Twitter has finally realized that Alex Jones should not be on the timeline. Kat, this is what you had to say. One rule for Twitter, I wouldn't mind a 20 second, are you sure you want to tweet this, period? And then a final, okay, but are you really sure? before actually publishing. That's, that's, that shouldn't yes. just be Twitter, that should be texting, that yes. should be phone calls, life, yes. email. I, I definitely have had times when I'm like, I really wish I waited a little. I wanna have you thought about it button for life. <laughs> All right, let's get into these fire tweets. <laughs> Carmela, you tweeted, y'all ever miss your train by 30 seconds and think, wow, if I didn't take that sip of water this morning, I would have made it. <laughs> yes! More days than I'd care to admit. I don't know if the sip of water is the first thing on my mind. I sometimes. I'm like, I know I should have held, should not have held that door open for that old lady. <laughs> wow. I'm All kidding. right. I'm kidding. He's not. He's I'm not. not. <laughs> I'm not. Okay, this tweet comes from Lauren. Ladies, if your man is winning the argument, just faint. <laughs> and that tweet, that ladies is gender neutral. <laughs> I'm gonna try that with you then. Have you ever fainted? I have not, have you? Uh, no, but interestingly in high school, my greatest fear was that I would uh, faint in front of the class, like when oh. I went in front of the class, or like faint on the graduations. I was, I thought about it all the time. I mean, I really think fainting should happen more, because then we'd have more fainting couches, and I really love a good fainting you know couch. I love a fainting couch. I love couch. a good fainting couch, love who doesn't? Couch. All right, here we go. <laughs> Karen Kilgrave, uh, 
Kilgareth. 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 We got thank it. You, thank we got you. It. Thank you. Thank you. Karen Kilgareth. Note to self: Don't let a millennial break celebrity death news. Uh, does anyone here care? Burt Reynolds died. Uh, okay, and, and that really is how twenty-something reporters be talking. I'm gonna take a moment here because yeah. that was a man. He was a very sexy man. Oh, I was like, it was an iconic <laughs> mustache. He was. You hot. will respect Burt Reynolds if you don't know who he is. Go look it up. That, I'm sorry, him on the bearskin? I was about to say, like, <laughs> and I was like, you know, he died. I just, I didn't, you know, yes. He was, he was fucking hot, y'all. We can have all kinds of reasons to appreciate Burt Reynolds' long and illustrious career and life, but nigga was fine. He was also a great comedic <laughs> actor. All right. I'm just look up Google Burt Reynolds bearskin bear rug mm. and you'll be crying right in your own obituary for him. Yeah. Okay, okay, Get it fine. Together. All right. Aaron Track, our producers are like, will you move on? Okay. Just found out my mom only knows how to get to YouTube by typing YouTube videos into Google. Please send your thoughts and prayers. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Aaron, let your mama live. My mom's live. My mom's live. <laughs> At least she figured out. At least she knows how to watch videos. At least she's watching YouTube. It's a step. It's a step. You ready for the tweet of the day? Yeah. All right, here we go. This is from Wyatt Privilege. Acme was just mailing bombs and rockets and shit to a dog. And with like express service. That's like it always <laughs> showed up very quickly. Express <laughs> service. Like, just in a giant box. In the middle of the desert. They, there should be rules for yeah, that. Yeah. Acme was, I want to know who was su supervising the company. And it never worked. It, right? That was the whole I mean, thing. The like, it never worked. worked. His plans never worked. The bombs worked every time. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, <laughs> it's Friday. Can you tell? All right. Up next, the Kavanaugh hearings. Remember that? I'm looking at the wrong camera, aren't I? Oh, it found me. Uh, the Kavanaugh hearings are still going. We're going to go live from the district. Paul McLeod is back. We missed him. We have missed we him. We missed him. <sighs> trying to make me laugh. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Paul, we missed you. Good morning. Hi, guys. I know it's been so long. It has. Oh, man. Your face is, it's like Burt Reynolds to me. It's beautiful. It gives me life. <laughs> Did you say like Burt Reynolds? That's right, man. I love That's that. the nicest thing you guys have ever said to me. Long time no see, buddy. Uh, so I, can I can shave into a mustache if you want. Hey, man, if you came on with a mustache next time, I wouldn't hate it. I wouldn't hate but it. But where are you coming to us uh, today? Yeah, it's a sad-looking little room. Uh, well, yeah, so th this is sort of the entranceway to the Senate Judiciary Room. And uh, we've got, of course, the Justice Kavanaugh hearings going on inside. Now, he's not actually here today. This is witnesses, so all kinds of people who have worked with him over the years are testifying about what kind of judge he's been. Okay, well, let's get into it. Here's a tweet from you. Uh, Senator Cory Booker has said, we are continuing to release committee confidential documents in violation of a sham rule. Meanwhile, as you point out, Paul, Republican whip John Cornyn says Booker is just trying to make a martyr of himself. I tried following this yesterday and it was very confusing. It seemed like Cory Booker was taking a very dramatic stand and then Cornyn, Cornyn was like, the documents are already out. So. Let's back up. What were uh, Booker and his fellow Democratic senators trying to accomplish? Yeah, it was a weird one. So Booker was trying to make a gesture, let's say, a protest gesture about, you know, there's this huge document fight and they're pushing for these many hundreds of thousands of documents about Kavanaugh and this pushback about which ones they're going to get. So what he was trying to do was... There's certain documents that have been released to the committee confidentially, but they haven't been made uh, publicly available yet. And maybe some of them will never be. And what you're not allowed to do is you're not allowed to then like pull them out and start asking questions about confidential documents, obviously. So what he was trying to do was that. He was trying in protest to come out and be like, I'm going to reveal these documents. I'm basically going to make them public without authorization as a way of protesting. And then everyone got really mad at him at first, and then they realized that those documents had actually been cleared and were allowed to be public. So then he wasn't really doing anything to break the rules. So then he had to release more confidential documents afterwards to try to re-break the rules that he didn't successfully break in the first time. 
Yeah, because he was. I, I like. I saw it. I saw the dramatic thing. He oh, was like, really? "Bring it on." He was like, yeah. "Really yeah, making was a like, big if one of, scene like, about the charge." Yeah, exactly. So what did yeah. did he actually succeed in breaking that rule? What was his reaction to the fact that this was kind of not as big a deal as he wanted it to be? Yeah, I mean, it was totally botched. As far as uh, statements go, I think this one really backfired on him. He did eventually succeed in breaking the rules, uh, but he had to release more documents afterwards. So uh, he kind of tried to brush it off when we were asking him yesterday. I was like, well, you're making this big statement and saying you're risking expulsion and all of this for these documents, but the documents are allowed to be released. Uh, he basically was like, well, we're, we're still releasing more documents and we're still putting it out. I mean, clearly he was intending to break the rules. It's sort of like, I don't know, I don't even know what the comparison would be. It'd be like if you were going to trespass somewhere in protest and then you like the police show up and they say, yeah, actually, you're totally allowed to stand there. So you go, oh, okay, well, I'll go over here and like arrest me over here. That's essentially what happened. So he did eventually end up successfully releasing documents he wasn't supposed to. All right. Well, um, let's talk about, you know, one of the most important questions for this hearing, uh, Roe v. Wade. What from uh, the hearing so far have we learned about Kavanaugh's stance on Roe v. Wade? Like, does he think it's a settled decision? Uh, we've learned very little. He has said that Roe v. Wade is a settled court decision. However, there's also been a lot of talk about how settled decisions can ultimately become upended and when future decisions can essentially overrule them. And he has declined, as justices typically do in these situations, to comment on hypotheticals or future cases. He hasn't even said whether he thought Roe v. Wade was settled correctly. He's just said that it is a settled decision. So we haven't really learned very much. And this is huge because, I mean, at the end of the day, this hearing really comes down to can Democrats convince two people, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, that that Brett Kavanaugh is going to overturn Roe versus Wade and convince them, the two Republican pro-choice senators, to vote against him. And so far, they haven't been able to. They haven't been able to stick anything to him that is a smoking gun that definitively says this guy is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. But it doesn't seem like they're really trying that hard either. Like you're saying, it hasn't come up a ton. So is there a plan? Is somebody going to try and stick him on this question? Well, that is part of what this documents fight is about, because as much as it seems sort of esoteric about how much documents are released and what is this going to reveal, uh, part of that is a fishing expedition where they're, I'm sure, hoping to find some email or something that reveals his thinking on Roe versus Wade. This is what we saw yesterday with an email that was uh, released that seemed to kind of show that he did not think that Roe versus Wade was settled, but it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. He was just saying that, well, it's not a consensus that it's settled because many people would disagree with it. Uh, so they're trying to use everything they can. The problem is there's just not much there. They don't have any smoking gun statement from him. He, they can't force him to answer questions on what he truly believes about abortion. He has declined to do that. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. We'll see what documents come out. But yeah, so far, so far Democrats have, have not succeeded. All right, well, let's turn our attention to another story. Here's a tweet from Adolfo Flores. Hoping to hold immigrant families indefinitely, the Trump administration is trying to get out from under a federal court agreement limiting how long it can hold children in immigration detention. Paul, why is the Trump administration trying to change this rule now? So uh, they've tried before, and I'm sure if this fails, they're going to try again, but they're doing it right now because, all right, so as we all remember, there was the massive crisis of families being separated. This is directly linked to that. The underlying cause of that, or one of the factors in it, was that you just, under the settlement, the Florida settlement, you cannot hold immigrant children indefinitely. You have to release them after basically a few weeks. And that means people who are coming with their parents, well, you have to release the parents too, or you have to separate the families. And that's why we saw the Trump administration saying, we're just going to separate the families and keep the parents detained and all of that. Now, they've stopped doing that because of the massive public outcry. But they're back to their original choice. Do you, you either release the parents and you, you, know, you put ankle bracelets on them and hope they show up for their court hearings and you go that route? Uh, or you try to find some way to 
keep them detained indefinitely. And that is what the Trump administration is doing right now. They're trying to change the rules, change this 20-year-old agreement so that uh, children and parents together can be kept in immigration detention facilities for as long as it takes for their cases to be heard and then they'll either be granted asylum or sent back. Um, you mentioned that um, all of this was set in motion because of the incredible, righteous uh, public outcry um, of, of, of seeing these families separated and, and children being treated in this way. But as I've been trying to follow this, like it seems just as chaotic and, and a lot of discrepancy between the federal government and states and states not quite having the facilities they would need to hold the families and everything. So uh, what is the framing that the administration is using to convince people that, yeah, changing this agreement would be a good idea and that they can handle this. Well, their argument is that the current system we're in after a few weeks, parents and their children are released, incentivizes people coming over the border with small children, which is, of course, a dangerous thing to do. And they're saying we need to change this system so that we do not encourage people to bring children with them as a way of trying to prevent indefinitely being detained. And we, uh, in fairness, the Obama administration uh, bumped up against this, too, and also made attempts to try to change the, the, the settlement. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the Obama administration went the other way, and they set up these systems in place to try to better monitor people, be, keep better track of them. Uh, offer them legal representation to encourage them to be to go through the system in the appropriate ways. And what we saw was the Trump administration, when they came in, they basically dismantled that. They threw that away. They've gone in a completely opposite direction. And now we're back into the original mess that we were in years ago. And they are saying they're pushing the way forward as we need to, keep, to indefinitely detain people. And they're going to keep trying to change the rules to be able to do that. Cool, 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 cool. All right. Well, Paul, as always, cool, cool, thank cool, you. Yeah. It, it was good checking in with you. Ooh. I'll see you guys next week. I'm back from Canada. I'm here oh. regularly again. Oh, okay. All right, you'll oh. be back. And again, shave, shave that, that beard and get I a mustache. I like his beard. Nah, give us a mustache. Anyways. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> That's not a commitment. That's a, just brainstorming. <laughs> just brainstorming. All right, friends. Uh, later in the show, Stephanie McNeil sits down with RJ Mitty of Breaking Woo. Bad. Uh, but first, we're road tripping, darlings. The first episode of our Making the Most of series is up next. We're so excited for you guys to see it. Stay tuned. Hope you like it. Get in, loser. We're going tweeting. Ha-ha! <laughs> it's fine. Let's take a selfie. Did you just get four, four for four? <laughs> what a bargain! All right, thanks, man. Are we there yet? Isaac, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Saeed, this is not driving this ferocity. AM to SFO, brought to you by Wendy's 4 for 4 meal. Thank you to our guest, Thomas Page McBee. Clear. Yes. Get going? Let's go. Once he starts yelling spring break. Spring break! Not spring break. New Ariana's up. It's good. Like the flight landed and I just heard a joke. Hey, road trippers. San Francisco, baby! Hello! What are we doing in NSF, man? Okay, so we wanted to use a hashtag, making the most of, to create a Twitter travel show. The thing is, Isaac lived in San Francisco for eight years. I lived in San Francisco for exactly a year. So, this is Isaac's trip. We're looking out at the bay right now. It's absolutely gorgeous. You can see pelicans. Sea lions? Let's see sea lions. Arr, arr, arr. Now we're in one of America's most expensive cities. We've got a long road trip ahead of us, mm -hmm. so we're all about saving money. And so I gotta tell you, uh -huh. jet lag is no joke. We took to Twitter yes. to look for jet lag cures. Matt, you tweeted back, exercise, see. preferably hiking or biking. We've already encountered some hills today. Mm -hmm. We gotta go hike them. I should've yeah. worn sneakers. Here we go. I'm feeling gravity. <laughs> Oh, no. We got this, buddy. Uh-huh. Come on. Take it. No, I can't. Yes, no, I can't. No. Believe me. It's like uphill in every direction. A few people actually live on this street, though, and they love it slash hate it. This is nuts. We did it. Woo! <laughs>
day two of the road trip. I am so happy to be alive. We are going to Zeitgeist, one of the bars you used to work at in San Francisco. Making the most of, for me, especially going back to a city that you used to live in, means visiting old friends. Todd, even though he will maybe yell at us, gave me my first job. He also likes to say that it was the biggest mistake of his life. This is a street. Oh, here we have a hill. Oh my God, here we go. I can't believe oh you guys chose Oh, hey, buddy. Oh. So good to see you. How do you make the most of San Francisco? What do you still love about it here? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm addicted to it. I did a tour of the city last week. What'd you like? What'd you see? Stuff I hadn't seen <laughs> that I didn't know existed <laughs> after living there for 22 years. But what about here? How's the crowds? Terrible. You didn't like me when I showed up first, though. And look, I grew on you. Yeah, like a wart. <laughs> you don't talk much, but when you do, it hurts. Thanks, Cheers, guys. Cheers. Safe travels. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate it. We're here at Ichi Sushi in the mission. Newsflash. We look really cute in the apron. We're gonna be joined by Chef Tim Archuleta. I used to be the world's worst sushi chef. Back before Tim opened the restaurant, he had a catering company, and I'm pretty sure he kept me around just out of the goodness of his heart. For the record, so <laughs> Aaron made me hire you. <laughs> One of the things we're discussing is making the most of, right? And yeah. that can mean so many different things. San Francisco, obviously, like a lot of things changing, but like, what are some of the things that you love about it? Community, the people. You know, San Francisco is a much slower city compared to New York. It's obviously evolving. It's a city. It's always changing. I remember when I moved to San Francisco, this guy told me, "Oh, you're moving here at the worst time San Francisco's ever been," and I was like. What? This place is amazing. What are you talking about? It would have been great if we would have had some more places to live and made life a little bit easier for everybody who lives here. But at the same time, it's still a fairly nice city. Like, you fall down, someone's gonna help you up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They might take a picture of you first and put it on Instagram, but they'll eventually. <laughs> I know it looks like we're in the middle of nowhere, but we're actually going to the studio of award-winning artist, Wendy McNaughton. She and I worked together on my first two books. It's been so long since I've seen her, I can't wait to talk with her. So this is Penn and Hank. This was our first big collaboration. I'm sorry, I'm okay, ready? It's like big bright lights gonna open. <laughs> <laughs> this is the proof of the cover. There's oh the tattoo. my god, that's crazy. This is you guys, right? Yeah, that is so cool. I've been easily overwhelmed a lot during <laughs> right. this trip. I mean, this is home. I spent eight years here, but this relationship developed so much here. This relationship, right. just listening to you talk about collaboration, this is a collaboration that you did with an incredible chef. Yeah, Samin Nosrad's amazing. She wears a lot of different hats. Yeah. Do you see yourself as that as well? Because you're an artist, but you're also a journalist. You're, you're a storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> The perfect view mm. of the Golden Gate Bridge, the bay, it's, yeah, can't see nothing. Oh, it's foggy. Look at that fog. Oh, I love the fog. <laughs> it's right there. We respect the fog. On the road again. It was so good to see those people. It was really nice to be in the city with you again. Oh, you're welcome. At the beginning, I thought we were gonna get like tips for like places to go for deals, but like the different things that people had to say about how they make the most of the city, it, mm -hmm. it was really impressive. To me, that it was like, are you paying attention yes. that you are here? Next stop. Portland. Portland, Oregon, baby. Get ready. Let's do it. Let's go live. I'm here with actor in the upcoming Now Apocalypse and River Runs Red, disability advocate, model, and of course, we can't forget the internet's favorite breakfast eater, RJ Mitty. RJ, did I get everything that encompasses you in that, in that intro? I, I, th I think we got enough there. I think we're good to go. Most important is breakfast eater though, right? Most important breakfast eater, you know, breakfast king, that vibe. <laughs> breakfast king of the internet. <laughs> yeah. So you hosted the Runway of Dreams Foundation's Fashion Revolution event, which showcases adaptive clothing designed for people with disabilities. So how is this organization, Runway of Dreams, hoping to change the industry? Well, I think already working with organizations like 
Nike and Tommy Hilfiger and Target and, and getting these types of designs and adaptive wear out into the general public is, is crucial. There's been a great stride in companies and corporations that are seeing that disability is, is lucrative. There is a market for people with disabilities. Who, who would have guessed? Um, <laughs> Seems like that should be obvious. You would think, but um, but it's great to see that everything is going fashion forward and that they're getting this this idea of like, oh, it, it, it needs to be accessible. There's this whole group that, that wants to have accessible clothes. I want to have clothes that, that fit well and that you can move in, that, that you don't feel like restrained. A lot of clothes are very restraining and a lot of people have the mentality of fashion of like, you fit my clothes, my clothes don't fit you. And, and that is changing. And it's great to see organizations like Runway Dreams set the trend on bringing mainstream media and adaptive clothing to that. Yeah, so when almost all clothing options are designed with able-bodied people in mind, what message does that send to people who might that might not work for them? I, you know, I don't think it's just able-bodied people in mind. I think a lot of people don't have the context. They don't have the understanding of, like, this is, this is why I need my shirt to be like this. This is why I have to have my shoes and my pants this way. And that mindset's evolving, and I think it's a mindset. I think it's this, I, I didn't think about it. That's the mentality, and that's a lot of the mentality we have been living in and that we still kind of live in is uh, I didn't think about it. I, it just wasn't something that was there. And now we're in a very open environment where everyone's thinking about everything. So all these ideas are just flooding through into these corporations now and they're going, they're all great, we love it. And, and it's bringing light. So what do you think that's one thing by say Fashion Week 2019 that the fashion industry could do to make their clothing a little more inclusive. I mean, I it varies because this is this is brand to brand. You're talking hundreds of thousands of brands. I think the conversation that we're having now, uh, what we did this past week with Runway of Dreams and all the other organizations setting this trend and showing that these these aren't and this isn't accessibility. These aren't accessible clothes for just people with disabilities. These are accessible clothes for everyone, and that's the mindset. It's, it's these, these, these tricks, these magnets, these Velcros, these, these straps. They're not just like, oh, it's, it's for the disabled. It's, it's for everyone. This is a community thing. This is accessibility for all, not just for a group. So I think with this, with this mindset and organizations that continue to push forward, you're going to see a big change in fashion. I hope so. Speaking a little more broadly, there's been, I feel like a lot of industries, including Hollywood and the fashion industry, are kind of waking up a little late to the fact that inclusivity, like you said, can be lucrative, and it's a good thing to be inclusive yep. of all different types of people. What do you think Hollywood, the fashion industry, could be doing to include people more? Hire more people with diversities, hire more people with disabilities. I think that's really what it gets down to is putting people with these, with these quirks, with these unique abilities that they have about themselves in the forefront of media and, and highlight that. And at the same time, the, the goal is to get that, but it's not to beat over everyone over the head with it. We don't, I don't want people to just be like, we got to throw these, these people in. We got to make this work to, to, to look more whatever. And, and that's not the goal. The goal is to have it organically, to, to flow, to get diversity in the forefront of, of, not just, of, of, of not just one type of diversity, but this, this commonality of diversity and, and having this, this blanket over everyone where it's kind of like, a, oh, I, I, that makes sense. That, that fits properly. So I, I think it's, again, a lot, of, a lot of my friends are designers and that they're very fashion forward and they have this mentality. So luckily I, I, don't, I don't really have to worry about too much of the people that I know, it's the people that I don't know, the people that, that don't understand the concept of, of this. And it, it takes time, it takes time, it takes energy and it just takes being seen and, and, and other people out there that, that have these unique abilities and these, these, these mindsets to be out in the public, to, to show who they are, to not be afraid. You know, you still have a lot of people hiding. Even more, you have people that feel like either one, they can be completely open, or two, that they have to hide who they are inside. And we're in that middle ground of, of like, 
we're divided in that. And I think when we find that middle ground of it's okay to be who you are, it re like you don't have to remind people, but you should be comfortable with who you are and what you feel. And if you're out in the public and people see you and they rep and you represent them, they're going to continue to grow that part, that that vision, that image, that look. Yeah, and our world is very, obviously there's different types of people everywhere you look, so it just makes sense that Hollywood, the fashion industry, would reflect that as well. So obviously you've had a great career, but you're still young. Is there a role that you would love to play that you haven't gotten the opportunity to do yet? The role that pays me a lot of money. That would be a nice <laughs> role. That, the that would be a nice role to pay. No, I, I have a lot of good projects. I'm very, I'm very lucky with what I, I get, and uh, and you know I'm always looking for new work and new projects. And you know I ha I have River Run Dre coming out. I have another movie called Tempio Compartido, which is a Mexican film that's circulating in Mexico at the moment. Um, I I have a new TV show which you mentioned, now, Apocalypse. That I'm a small part on that I'm really excited about, and I have a few other projects I'm in development. On and working with and conversating about, so it's, it's some craziness. It's exciting stuff. Okay, obviously, I can't have you sit here with me and not talk about Breaking Bad. Obviously. <laughs> I was a huge fan. Everyone in my family is a huge fan. I feel like everyone in the world <laughs> is a huge fan of Breaking Bad. It's actually been 10 years since the show premiered, which seems pretty crazy. Yeah. So what's it like being a part of pop culture? I'm sure you get this question all the time. That's still going, so strong. People are still finding it on Netflix. You know, what's amazing is, is a show like Breaking Bad, it's, it's still going. You know, with Better Call Saul, it's just an homage to, to Breaking Bad and, and the evolution of, of the show and then the de-evolution of Better Call Saul because it's in the past. And uh, it, it's an amazing testament to television. You know, we're in a very amazing age. And when Breaking Bad started in 2008, we had, we had very limited shows that had this type of content. And it was kind of that golden age of television, which then evolved to what we have now, which is amazing. These, these shows and these movies are just, just piling in. And, you know, they're so fickle now because people watch it and they, they just move on to the next one, move on to the next one. And Breaking Bad still is one of those things that people are still behind. It's like, it's like hopefully it's going to be like MASH. Like 60 years from now, people are still going to be like, remember the pilot episode of Breaking Bad? <laughs> and, uh, I think that's definitely going to happen. It's special though, and we were very lucky to have, I was very lucky to have the show, and it, it allowed me to, to have a platform. It allowed me to work with organizations that I would never dream of working with, and, and being with you fine folks today, so. So, obviously, the big thing in TV right now is the reboot, and I know Aaron Paul, Brian Cranston were up yeah. and around doing some press a few weeks ago, so do you think there's going to be a Breaking Bad reboot? I mean, the show kind of just ended. I, Would you do it? I mean, well, hey, if, if, it's, if, it's the right, if, it's a good, if it's the right story and it still has the same feel, I, I'm always down. I'm never going to close that door. That door will always be a very big door in my life that would be very hard to close if I wanted to. And and I loved the cast. I loved, I loved the crew and, and the people that I worked with. You know, I do miss Breaking Bad on the sense of it was one of the most professional sets with the best writing and the best people. And we had the best production. And when you have that, it's very rare. And we were very lucky with Breaking Bad that, that then it just continued off with Better Call Saul and all those people stayed that core group of workers and, and crew and I mean, who knows? I, I think I think there's some stuff about to happen on Better Call Saul. I've been watching. I don't know. Do you watch Better Call Saul? My dad keeps yeah. telling me I have to start. It's, I'm really bad about watching TV. I'll be honest with you. Breaking good. Bad is one of the only shows in my entire life I've watched the whole thing. Well, it, it, it's getting good. Okay, it's so nice. I, I I think I'm gonna start. My dad tells me it every time I see him. I recommend I recommend Better Call Saul. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you never know, man. They 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 they're doing a lot of reboots. So they definitely are. I mean. Hello, like Walt Jr. could take over the family business, hey, start, know, start cooking some mess. <laughs> hey, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> baby Holly getting in there. Baby Holly, baby Holly's like seven, slinging dope on the corner. Walt Jr.'s cooking meth in the bathroom. <laughs> no. I better get royalties for that idea. <laughs> okay, so I have to wrap. Obviously, here at BuzzFeed, we love beans, and Walt Jr. is the funniest 
meme with all of his breakfast memes. So I have to ask you, I'm sure you've gotten this question, but what is your favorite breakfast? I'm a hash browns and bacon guy, man. Those memes though, I, I'm like, for a long time I used to not be okay with them. <laughs> I would like repel the breakfast memes and then eventually I was like, I guess I got it. I guess I gotta eat it. Like I, I like it's, it's eat you gotta eat the breakfast. I gotta eat my breakfast. <laughs> and, but uh, it, it's funny, man. Some crazy stuff. The internet, y'all, y'all put some crazy stuff out there. Hey, what, like, do you? So when you eat your hash browns and your eggs and stuff, do you put the number with the bacon? No. Oh, I, I, I do. I do everything in my power to make as least breakfast Breaking Bad meme life. Choices as possible. That's kind of the the mo where like I'm just kind of like, all right, no one can watch me eat breakfast. Like I can't like go to a place and like actually like eat it without being like shit. Hopefully no one catches. Like no one, no one tries to be like, dude, you're watching, you're eating breakfast at like an IHOP or something. It's like no, just secretly. Like, <laughs> Do people come up to you like you can't eat breakfast in public? Can't eat breakfast in public. It does not work well. Oh my god. I'm so sad for you. What's cool is I'll, I'll actually, um, Brian and Aaron are actually doing a campaign um, where they're cooking in the RV about with breakfast. It's, it's going to be cool. Their um, kind campaign is one of their, um, the charities, and um, uh, Missing and Exploited Children is the other charity that they're that they're doing um, for this event, flying out somewhere from LA to, to cook in the RV, in the RV um, with Brian and Aaron. That so, sounds cool. Yeah. It's, sounds but, awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Breakfast. breakfast, gotta love it. Breakfast, man. <laughs> well, RJ, thank you so much. I'm sorry the breakfast memes have hindered your love of eating in the morning, but we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. <laughs> More AOTDM coming up next. BuzzFeed News science reporter Azinga Reishi tweeted, I worked on an episode of the new Netflix docuseries, Follow This, about the controversial fight to open the first safe injection site for heroin users in the United States. Azine is going to join me now to talk about safe injection sites. Azine, good morning. Good morning, Saeed. Hi there. Sorry that we couldn't play the clip. Okay, so you went to a safe injection space in Vancouver, Canada for Follow This. Uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, so people will just have to watch the episode to see. But um, I don't know if you've been to the downtown east side of Vancouver, but it's one of the densest open area drug markets in the world. Um, you know, there are many, many, many uh, thousands of people living there who um, are in poverty and clearly are um, drug users. So um, this site that we visited, Insight, was set up in 2003 and um, was the first site in North America to sort of allow those drug users a space where they didn't have to worry about law enforcement, where they could get clean needles, where they could use whatever illegal drugs that they, that they had themselves procured and that they had brought there, um, and uh, be watched over by medical professionals in case they overdosed. So it was kind of a wild, I mean, nothing like that exists in the U.S. It was a wild thing to see and sort of imagine potentially existing here. Absolutely. It's both wild and very pragmatic. Um, I think we have a clip of that episode. Let's go take a look at it now. And how often do you come here? I just don't take a chance. There's no reason that anybody should have to die because they have to shoot alone. Is it harder being a woman well, I on think the streets? And well, yeah, because it's more dangerous. Mm -hmm. I'd get dug and all my stuff would get robbed. So then I would have to go out and pull a, you know, do a hustle, whatever I was doing for money back then. It's just really shitty and crappy to, to inject in an alley by yourself and having to watch your back. From a small town girl watching Pretty Woman, let me tell you, it ain't nothing like that down here. Wow, powerful moment. Okay, Azine, um, as you mentioned, nothing like this exists in the United States, right? And the current presidential administration is very opposed to kind of this um, approach to drug treatment. Why are these uh, safe injection sites um, so effective? So, um, at least in Vancouver, 
results results out of that site show that it's been visited something like 3.6 million times, um, and they've reversed 6,440 overdoses. So that's sort of the big thing everyone refers to all the time. You know, you can't die if you walk into one of these spaces and are using these these dangerous drugs. Um, the other sort of ripple effects are are, um, are also clear in Vancouver, at least, that um, crime reduces in the surrounding area sort of uh, the needle sharing activity of this population of people goes down. So then you have less incidence of things like HIV and hepatitis. Um, so from a public health standpoint, it's really been increasingly viewed as a good idea. And it's sort of in this, it falls into this um, category of sort of an approach to drug use called harm reduction, which is, you know, we're not necessarily going to stop these people from using these dangerous drugs, but maybe we can stop them from dying or getting, you know, very sick. And obviously getting sick with something like HIV or hepatitis also costs these cities a lot of money. So um, that's why we're seeing more and more U.S. cities and states start to sort of look at this as a, as a serious option. And, and let's talk about that. Can you tell me about some of the cities in the United States that are beginning to embrace this policy and, and how are they doing it um, in, in contrast to federal policy? Right. So it's sort of all over the map right now. Um, the Netflix episode focused on Seattle, which was the first city to come out saying that they were going to open a space like this. And they came out in January of 2017, and they still haven't managed to open a site up, which I think shows sort of how tough this battle is going to be for the cities and states that are interested. Um, it's something like 20 cities and states have currently explored this as an option, like through legislation or you know public health boards, whatever. But only five cities um, have said that they're actually going to move forward and do this. And that's Seattle, Philly, New York, um, Ithaca, and San Francisco. And so these five cities are really taking on the feds who have clearly stated that, you know, this is illegal, that allowing people to use illegal drugs on on your premises um, is an illegal activity. It violates the 1986 uh, crack house statute. So um, these these cities are really going out on a limb and saying, look, we have a very serious overdose crisis. Uh, People are dying in our cities at at such high rates that we are sort of willing to take on the feds. Um, and, And we just have to see sort of how that plays out. Absolutely. And, and, and just one last question. Um, obviously, you know, I read your reporting all the time. You are incredible. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, based on your reporting that you've done here in the States, going to one of these sites yourself in person, did anything surprise you? I think how normal it felt in those spaces. And it was, I mean, people are just walking by in sight and sort of living their, their daily lives. People who are drug users, not drug users, just passing through the area. Um, I think there is this fear in the U.S. um, that makes it, you know, around enabling drug use, around drug use in, in, you know, in general, that makes it really hard to imagine that happening. Um, But, you know, we'll see there there are all these cities that are that are moving forward with this. and, And maybe that'll be something that, you know, we'll experience here as well. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your reporting. People can read it and watch it. Azine, thanks for joining us this morning. All right, friends, and of course, you need to check out Follow This on Netflix. It's so good. Such a range of news stories. Get into it. All right. Up next, Isaac and I are going to respond to some more of your tweets. is more excited about the weekend than me. I just I think that's actually time true. To go. I think that's a factual <laughs> statement. <laughs> I love my job. I love Isaac with all my heart. I love the AMTD and family. I got to get the fuck out of here. You know? <laughs> um all right, let's get into these tweets. Well, I thought you were going to talk about the, Burt. We'll get to Burt Reynolds in a second. All right. There's a Burt Reynolds tweet. Jolie, you had this to say about our road trip. Um, driving Miss Ferocity needs to happen now. I need something to watch after I watch Follow This. One, good on you for watching Follow This, because it is amazing. Mm -hmm. Two, I definitely think that's what we should call. When I was like, I am not Morgan Freeman, and this is not Driving Miss Ferocity. But let me tell you, viewer, it actually was. Do you have your license? I sure don't. Yep, so I was driving us all around town. I'll tell you why you're not Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, I believe, drives faster. Wow. <laughs> Here's the thing about me. I let, think it's the safest driver. Yes. Yeah. All right, now, when I drive on my own, 
I like to take my own risks for oh, myself, okay. but when I have a package that I care about, you're right. I drive the speed limit. I obey the laws. <laughs> it's your love And language. he gets mad at me for it. For he drives caring. like father time. Um, <laughs> what is that? that is the, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like, everything ain't gonna be gold. Okay. Uh, <laughs> We asked you for Twitter rules, uh, and Robin Kenner, you said, oh, this is funny, everyone got to fave my tweets. That's a good rule. I mean, that's a good rule. (laughs) Or retweet. That's a good rule. Yeah, absolutely. Forced retweets. Forced retweets. I did. I saw a lot of people having fun with it. Uh, Carol, our producer, said uh, no one gets to tweet. That's the new rule. Carol trying to shut it down. Listen, we also talked Burt Reynolds. Uh, Here's a Burt Reynolds memory from Rachel Hey Girlfield. Burt Reynolds was the voice of the dad on Out of This World. The show was about a half alien who had magical powers a la Sabrina. Older millennials might know this show. Now, I, when I was in the control room, I, I looked it up. Did, I don't remember this. I do not remember the yeah. show either. Now, here's what's funny about Burt Reynolds. We're in the control room. Our producer, um, Alex, did some research. And from an article from Variety, here are roles that Burt Reynolds turned down over the course of his career. He turned down James Bond, Michael Corleone in The Godfather, Han Solo, Star Wars, Richard Gere's role in Pretty Woman, Jack Nicholson's role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Bruce Willis's role in Die Hard, Jack Nicholson's role in Terms of Endearment. So, you know, this is what I got to say. Burt Reynolds was fine, but he might have been dumb. No, no, here's the thing. I'm not gonna let you disrespect (laughs) Burt Reynolds after he has passed away. Here's what Burt Reynolds is. Burt Reynolds is smart. He knew that those roles were gonna be iconic and that he shouldn't stand in the way. He knew his sexiness might overcome them. Harrison Ford's gonna play a better Han Solo than Burt Reynolds. He knew that. He was too sexy for the Millennium Falcon. You're wrong, my friend. Or if anything, maybe had a bad agent. But don't you dare disrespect this man, this beautiful man, after he has left us. God bless Burt Reynolds. God bless. Too sexy for it. Just saying, I believe in reincarnation, so give it another go, Bert. <laughs> girl, I just don't know about your decision making in this life. Anyway, uh, friends, we have reached the end of our show. It is the beginning of my weekend and yours too soon. Thank you to our guests, RJ Mitty, Charlie Warzel, Horatio Ayer, Paul McLeod, Stephanie McNeil, Azeem Gureshi. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you to Bert Reynolds for existing, and we will be back on Monday, 10 a.m. Enjoy your weekend. You deserve. Don't anyone say who wrote that op-ed before the don't weekend. Do no more don't news. do it. You got the no news? No more news. Hold on to that it. That shit Hold on wait until, until Monday. Monday. <laughs>